Hello everyone! Welcome to this episode of Grim Tales from the Garden State, the show where we follow the dark stories and twisted threads that have been woven in the great state of New Jersey. I'm your host, Mrs. B, and today's story is about Melanie McGuire, also known as the Suitcase Killer. She was an adored mother and fertility clinic nurse who by all accounts lived a simple life. She had two sons, a loving husband, and they were about to buy a brand new house. They were working their way up in the world. But Melanie wasn't happy with the life she had worked to build. So she decided that she would dismember it. And before we get started, here's today's terrifying tidbit. According to National Geographic, almost two dozen feet in sneakers had washed ashore on the coast of the Salish Sea. Detached from human bodies, by the way. They have no idea where these sneakered feet are coming from, but experts think it's due to how sneakers are designed nowadays. Because they're more buoyant, they're floating to the surface when bodies decompose instead of sinking with everything else. These deaths are due to accidents, suicides, and well, most people wear sneakers. So the next time you're at the beach, you could score a new pair of Nike Air Maxes. Although our story takes place in a couple different towns, the Maguires lived in, well, one died, in Woodbridge Township, New Jersey. Fun fact, Woodbridge is the oldest original township in New Jersey. It was settled in 1664. Today, this dense suburban township's population hovers around 100,000 people. Two-thirds of people own their own homes, and it's very ethnically and economically diverse. It gets a C-plus for safety, which isn't the best, but not super terrible or concerning either. It's got good schools, it's good for families, so it makes sense that the McGuire family was living there to raise their two kids. Melanie McGuire was born Melanie Lynn Slate on October 8, 1972, in Ridgewood, New Jersey. She attended Middletown South High School in Middletown Township in Monmouth County. According to her brother, although she was a very bright and gifted student, She had apparently bragged about sleeping with two married teachers while she was attending high school. Alright. So after that, in 1990, she enrolled at Rutgers University and graduated with a degree in statistics in 1994. Then she majored in nursing and graduated from the Charles E. Gregory School of Nursing in 1997. Melanie and Bill McGuire, a Navy veteran, had gotten married in 1999. Also according to her brother, Melanie ran around flashing her sonogram during the wedding and made people feel uncomfortable. So... These are the kind of weird antics that Melanie would do, but nothing self-putting that people would have suspected her of being, you know, this sinister. So, let's jump ahead five years later to 2004. 31-year-old Melanie is a nurse at a fertility clinic called Reproductive Medicine Associates in Morristown. Her patients loved her. They saw her as this warm, sympathetic voice in what was usually a very stressful and, you know, uh, disconnected and cold situation. Fertility struggles can be devastating, whether it involves IVF or trying to fight a surrogate to carry your child. You would want the nurse with whom you're working to be accommodating and understanding of the tribulations you'd face in this process. And Melanie provided that excellent support system that a patient would be looking for. She was this five foot two little woman with curly hair who was described as being spunky and sassy, but also hardworking, compassionate, and dedicated. Her husband, 39-year-old Bill, was now a computer program analyst at NGIT. And the couple had two sons, ages two and four. The family of four lived in an apartment across the street from the Woodbridge Center Mall. On April 28th, Bill had just put down a deposit on a new larger house in Warren County and they were about to sign on it. This would be their first house ever. Bill is all excited. He's already transferring the gas bill to the new house. He's calling his friends to tell them the good news. But the seller called Bill later that same evening and he didn't pick up the phone like he had been throughout the entire buying process. In fact, no one had heard from Bill after around 6.10 p.m. that night. 
this was weird for Bill because he was always talking to people on the phone and well, you know, whether it be for work or personal reasons, you know, he wasn't really one to miss a call. So this immediately started to raise suspicions. In a random turn of events, Melanie attempted to file for a divorce the next day, April 29th, and file a restraining order against Bill. She told her friends and family that Bill had been screaming at her and hitting her earlier that morning, stuffing a dryer sheet in her mouth. So some really brutal stuff. She had asserted that she had to lock herself with one of her kids, not sure what the other one was, in the bathroom to protect herself from his rage. She claimed she heard Bill, you know, just digging and rummaging through drawers and then he fled the premises and she claimed she never saw him again. Melanie was not able to go through with the divorce and the restraining order filings because she claimed that the court was too crowded that day. One of Melanie's co-workers testified that she, the co-worker, had discussed how expensive her own divorce was with Melanie in the months prior to Bill's disappearance. Later on that day of the 29th, Melanie took a self-care trip down to Atlantic City. It was suspicious AF that she tried to file for divorce the day that Bill was declared, like, you know, a missing person. The next day, on the 30th, police find Bill's 2002 Nissan Maxima at the Flamingo Hotel in Atlantic City, as well as some surveillance footage that caught someone exiting the vehicle and just walking away. On May 5th, a fisherman near the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel in Virginia found a Kenneth Cole suitcase containing human remains. On May 8th, Bill's car was towed from the Flamingo Hotel parking lot. May 11th, a college student finds another suitcase with human remains, a head and a torso specifically, that had washed ashore on Fisherman's Island, which is off the coast of Virginia. May 16th, a boater finds, you guessed it, a suitcase that matched the other two with human remains. It was clear that these three suitcases were part of a set. Five days later, a composite skit was released by the Virginia Beach Police of the face of the man whose body parts were found. Conveniently, a woman named Susan Rice, who lived in Chesapeake, Virginia, identified the victim as Bill McGuire, an old friend of her husband's from the Navy. Let us all say our thank yous to our girl Susan Rice, because that identification would eventually help bring justice and closure to the McGuire family. But on that same day, Melanie signed papers seeking a divorce from Bill, and on May 25th, Melanie was finally able to officially file for divorce. This was all happening in very quick succession, from... You know, when the crime was committed, to when each suitcase was found, to the composite sketch. This is all happening very, very fast. Four months later, on September 15th, the Virginia police realized that this crime was out of their jurisdiction and had actually occurred in New Jersey. So they handed the case over to the New Jersey police. Fast forward to March 8th, 2005. It has now been 10 months since Bill's remains were discovered. Melanie gets a bug planted on her by the Middlesex County Police so they could spy on her phone conversations between her and her friends and family. Three months later, on June 2nd, 2005, after Melanie had dropped her sons off at daycare in Metuchen and was on her way back to her home in Brick, she was arrested and charged with murdering and dismembering Bill McGuire. Her bail was set at $750,000. She posts bail and gets released. Not sure where she got three quarters of a million dollars, but apparently she had it like that. She pleads not guilty. Now we're in October, and a state grand jury indicted her on four counts, raising her bail to $2.1 million, which she somehow posted again. Then, Baby Girl got another indictment for writing letters that point to the idea that she was being framed for her, for her husband's murder. The grand jury figured that this was her attempt at creating a red herring, so basically trying to get the police off her back. And although the police were pretty comfortable saying that Melanie committed the murder, they were also convinced that she had an accomplice, which, spoiler alert, they never found. 
Now we're on March 5th, 2007, so about three years after the murder, and Melanie's trial begins in New Brunswick. The prosecution had a lot against Melody. Her affair is exposed. I think we all saw this one coming. It turns out her friends and family were the only people Melanie was confiding in. She was having an affair with a doctor she worked with at the fertility clinic, Dr. Bradley Miller, since at least 2002. They would sneak down to hotels and Dr. Miller would sign in under a pseudonym so they could cover their tracks. Another piece of evidence was her easy pass. It showed that she had gone through a toll in Delaware two days after Bill's murder. Melanie knew this would appear on her EasyPass account, so she fought with EasyPass trying to get the charge removed. Some guy, who a lot of people think was her father, also tried to get the charge taken off her account. Melanie tried to explain it away, saying she was just shopping in Delaware for, you know, their lack of sales tax. But who would go shopping in another state two days after their husband went missing? So that was already weird. The luggage that Bill's remains were in matched the set that Melanie had in her house, and the set was clearly missing the exact size of bags that his, pa- that his parts were found in. The plastic bags that his remains were in matched a roll of bags Melanie had in her home. She also googled how to buy a gun and info about poison, sedative drugs, and murder. She also asked a friend how to buy a gun. So she buys a 38 caliber handgun over the bridge in Easton, PA, with wadcutter bullets three days prior to Bill's disappearance. Wadcutter billets were an odd choice because they're usually used for people who are training how to shoot a gun. So something you'd probably use at like a like a gun or a firing range. Um, so they're not really for self-defense or hunting or, you know, anything like that. You know, they're, they're not very aerodynamic, but they're great for a close range shooting. So she could have used this choice of bullet as a cover for why she was even buying a gun in the first place. And we guessed it, this was the exact weapon and bullet type that Bill was murdered with. So matched with like, you know, that specific gun and the unusual bullet choice, you know, a lot of things were pointing at Melanie. And the prosecution also asserted that she obtained the drugs that uh, Bill was incapacitated with from her work at the clinic. The authorities concluded with this mound of evidence that in the evening of April 28, 2004, After closing on the new house, Melanie allegedly drugged Bill and then shot him somewhere between April 28th and 29th. So during the trial, Bill is painted as this abusive, you know, aggressive gambler who had debts to the mob in Atlantic City by the defense. They did this to plant a seed of doubt in the jury like, hey, well, maybe because he was so behind on his payments to the mob, they just came and, you know, had him sleep with the fishes. You know, it's very basic to say someone got killed by the mob, especially when they can't even defend themselves because, you know, they're dead. Bill was just a programmer and a dad. There was no evidence or testimony to support any of these claims. They were just trying to do anything to remove Melanie as the prime suspect, but there was just too much against her. You guys know the feeling when, you know, you've just let something go too far and your anxiety is just getting higher and higher? Well, that's where Melanie was when they closed on the house in Warren County. She was regretting getting married to Bill and she didn't want to feel like she was even deeper in a relationship that she just didn't want to be in. The judge said that Melanie had clearly planned the complex details of the murder over a significant period of time and geography. The cruelty of her premeditated malice had surpassed the act itself. So, on April 23rd, 2007, Melanie was found guilty and convicted of murder. On July 19th, the now 34-year-old was sentenced to life in prison. The judge also sentenced her to an additional consecutive two-and-a-half-year term for perjury. Many people were shocked about the McGuire case, especially those that knew the couple. Melanie's patients at the fertility clinic were largely wealthy women from New York who really had trust in her. 
She was even referred to as the Mother Whisperer. Her patients felt confused and sad, but they all followed the case like hawks because they could have never suspected someone who was just so warm and kind to have really been so heartless in reality. You know, obviously with your doctor, they know more about you than you know about them, but you know, you feel like you can get a read on people after interacting with them over such a long period of time and on such a, a sensitive subject. You know, her patients had even assumed that Bill had passed away from some kind of illness. There's no way that Melanie could have killed Bill, you know? They couldn't even perceive that this woman who had helped them so much had murdered her husband. And, you know, this act left her current patients in a lurch because, you know, she was the one dealing with their files and trying to connect them with surrogates and IVF and whatnot. Who was going to pick up, you know, their their cases, their files? And, you know, they wonder what would happen to them now that, that their nurse was on a leave of absence. This seemed like a woman who was all about family. You know, how could she do this? And Bill's family testified in court about their love for their family member. His niece, Laura Lagosh, said she couldn't remember her uncle by his infectious grin and the boyish mischief in his eyes anymore. She said... I can see the pencil sketch rendered by the Virginia Police Department of a body that was pulled out of the water on three separate days. No name, no voice, just lifeless eyes set in a bloated, misshapen head. His sister pushed hard for his justice because she adored her little brother, and she's the one that took in the couple's two young sons. It's wild that Bill survived a war, but ended up being killed by his own wife, who was literally a nurse. You know, I feel like in these first few episodes, there's been an unintentional theme of partners murdering each other, but I think that's like the most common type of murder. There's also a theme of people who seem like they should have had solid morals or like an ethical code because of their jobs or positions. But clearly, we know that we can't assume anyone is a good person by, you know, any kind of role that they have, apparently. And I'm pretty sure you're most likely to be killed by someone you know, and you know, who do you know better than your partner? So anyway, I hope you guys liked today's episode. Don't forget to rate, review, and follow this podcast, and I will see you next week on Grim Tales from the Garden State. Goodbye!